Listening to the Hope and Heart Feels podcast, where we are exploring practical insight for racial justice and social change. I'm your host, Andrea Henry, singer, songwriter, and author. And for the past several years, I've been on a serious intellectual quest to understand how do ordinary people change the world. Um, I want to thank everyone who's been on the journey with me, the journey I've been talking about to understand how do ordinary people change the world. Uh, some of you are, are on my email list. Some of you have been sharing, you know, uh, the books that I've been recommending and songs and all that kind of stuff. And some of you have even been supporting this show through Patreon. So thank you for that. If you want to be a part of that journey as well, you can uh, follow us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash Andre Henry. The music on the show today is brought to you by me again. And today, once again, we have one of our favorite thinkers and speakers on anti-racism, author, speaker, uh, media mogul. He's a mogul now, today. He's a mogul today. <laughs> Dr. This Jamar so Tisby, good. thanks for being on the show, Dr. Dr. Tisby. You, you know how like in high school, there's all the kids at the cool kids table and you're like, oh my goodness, I wish I could sit there. And now I feel like I pulled up a chair at the cool kids <laughs> table talking to Andre Henry. But the coolest thing about Andre is that he doesn't want to keep that table exclusive. He's like, there's room for all of us to eat. Pull up another chair. So that's Pull what up another man, chair. This is a pleasure, bro. Hey, real talk. This is an opportunity for me. I really do admire your work, uh, Jamar. And, you know, honestly, I do have a goal of just interviewing every anti-racist. Like if you're an anti-racist doing work on, online, I want to talk to you. <laughs> I, I said to Jamar before we started recording, there's so many ways to introduce him because he is the founder of the, the Witness Black Christian Collective, Pass the Mic former assistant director of narrative and advocacy at the Anti-Racism Center in D.C., Ph.D. in history, author. I mean, there's so much. So, like, we just, we have so much we can talk about. And so, I mean, I'm if I'm trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up, I'm still trying to figure out. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Me too. But, but if I spend any more time just telling you all how great Jamar Tisby is, it's going to take up the rest of our time. And we have, we have some questions to ask him. So, Jamar, you, you recently released a book called How to Fight Racism, um, which, first off, really appreciate the title. Uh, yeah, like, um, very practical. <laughs> there wasn't another book with that exact title. I was like, what? This is It's kind of crazy. <laughs> it's like, like, how many years have we been doing this? And nobody exactly. caught that title. They didn't, even, bro, they didn't even have the website domain. So you can go to howtofightracism.com and it'll link to this book. It's wild. Dot com. So, uh, Jamar, tell us, tell us about the book. You know, I mean, it sounds self-explanatory, but how, how do we fight racism? <laughs> what, what are you saying in, in the book? You know, every, every, every book attempts to address, you know, a, a, a gap in, in the, the topic somehow. And, and that's actually what this book is trying to do. So we have what we all know as like what I call racial justice resistors, the outright racists, right? The people who are pushing back against racial mm -hmm justice. And those are not the people who are going to tune into this podcast more than likely. Right. So then we're right. talking to, you know, the coalition of the willing, you know, preaching to the choir, so to speak. But I actually think there are a couple of issues, even among the people who want to fight racism. So yes. in, if you look at the literature, uh, there's there's two issues that I see. One is they're often very light on the practical side. Yes. So we tend to put a heavier emphasis on the diagnosis and the analysis. 
which mm-hmm. I did too. My first book, The Color of Compromise, is a historical survey of racism in the U.S. church, and it's an analysis. How did we get here? It's describing the problem. Um, and then if they address the practical at all, it's, you know, a couple of bullet points at the end of a chapter or one chapter uh, like I did in my book. And then if you do, if they do address the practical aspects of like, what do we do about racism? Mm. In my view, it tends to be really listy and yes. disjointed. Yeah. So it's, it's almost like you walk away having to memorize a, a, a bunch of bullet points and then try to try to take action on those, which almost never works. Right. So right. this is where I think how to fight racism comes in. So this yeah. is a book that prioritizes the practical. <laughs> so there's, there's mm-hmm. bullet points, there's practical steps in every chapter. But I think the real value of the book is the framework I give called the arc of racial justice. The mm. arc of racial justice. Okay, I'm interested. Tell me. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. So, so if if the problem in a lot of our uh, ways to address the practical aspects of racism is is being sort of listy and disjointed, then what we need is actually like a coherent framework. And, yes. and even as we look at, we'll, we'll talk about this later in the show, I'm sure. But even as we look at 2020, uh, part of the problem with that approach is it tends to be reactive and occasional. Oh, oh my God. Oh my God. So it just, it's like, oh, something happens. I need to be activated about racism now. And then, oh, the headlines change. So let me go back to everything else I was doing, which didn't concern race before. What we actually need is a complete reorientation, a whole posture toward (gasps) uh, racial justice and Mm anti-racism. That's what the arc of racial justice can help us do. So like I said, it stands for awareness, relationships, Mm -hmm. commitment, awareness, that's the knowledge, the information, the data that we need to understand white supremacy, racism, and race. Um, mm-hmm. That's listening to this podcast. That's reading the books. Relationships. This is this is the part where I lose a lot of folks because we're all like, justice, change the law, change the policy. Yes, 100%. And mm-hmm. I'll get to that. But yeah. it always goes through people. Yes. And if we lose the people part of the equation, mm-hmm. we've actually lost the heart of it we've lost the mm. empathy um yeah. we've lost the, the the reason why it matters kind of thing yeah and then commitment this gets at the part where it's not just about how you feel about somebody it's not just right. about whether you use the n-word or whether some of your best friends are black no there are actual systems and policies that create and perpetuate racial inequality and we need to uh, uh, uh attack those and dismantle those and build equitable systems and that's mm. how i think we beyond the list. That's how I think we get beyond the reactivity is that we actually have a whole framework um, with this arc of racial justice that helps us not just, you know, have a list, but think about racial yes. justice in a new way. You know, I really, I mean, you saw me, it just shot through me when you said that it is occasional and reactive, you know, yep. and I see that and we're living kind of in the wake of one of those occasions and reactions in 2021, I mean, near the end of 2021, going to 2022, because we saw, you know, the world respond to the murders of Ahmaud Arbery, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, the whole world, huge reaction, you know, Mm -hmm. um, throwing statues of colonizers into the sea, you know, defacing Confederate monuments, you know, a um, hundred days of protests, uh, radical mm-hmm. protests in Portland. 
a little over a year after those protests, it's almost like it didn't even happen in some ways, in some ways. Yeah. I don't want to discount all of the important work that organizers and activists have done all over the world. And some of the, the conversation about defunding the police is at least on the table. You know, there have been some bills that have been introduced and all the kind of stuff. But still, and as is expected, the movement activity has waned so much mm-hmm. that sometimes mm-hmm. I even wonder, like, man, what, what was the message that we took out of that season? And so mm-hmm. I appreciate this framework that you're bringing up. And I am so curious about your perspective as a historian on where we are now, <laughs> you know, and yeah. how you're viewing this. And what do we need to do in order to move this forward? Because it does seem like we're in this cycle of, you know, calm, outrage, mm-hmm. calm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. That is a great question. Um, and and, and I, I started the book, How to Fight Racism, on the very first page with a very risky proposition. The very first sentence, and, I'm, and I, I trembled even as I wrote it, was mm-hmm. something is different this time. Mm-hmm. And I get, a, I, I get a lot of questions about that because of the very facts that you bring up. A year later, you know, mm-hmm. what has substantively changed? Is the activism still there? So I can answer that in a lot of ways. Number one, do I, do I still believe that something was different this time? Yes, I do. In, in, in this, yeah. And think about it this way. If you were learning about another country with this, you know, United States folks have a terrible time doing, <laughs> knowing what's going on in the world. <laughs> Let's say uh, you were learning about uh, protests in another country and you heard the fact that um, these protests that were happening in this other country were the largest protests numerically in the history of the nation. Mm-hmm. You heard that uh, mm-hmm. deeply, deeply entrenched cultural symbols and practices were being uprooted uh, mm-hmm. in the name of justice. You learned that people who had never participated in such activism before, including across racial lines, participated in it. And you step back and you look at that. What would you say about mm-hmm. that moment in that nation? You would say mm-hmm. something really substantial and significant is happening. And I yes. think that's what has happened in the U.S. Now, it was brought on. I, I do think the pandemic had a huge part to do with it, where people right. were forced to pay attention in, in a way that that they they haven't been before. I also do think it was brought on by Trumpism and feeling this acute sense of dread uh, with this man in office and, and in power. Um, so there were there were sort of unique historical factors there. Um, yeah. But here's the thing: I also think we need to reevaluate what we count as success and progress. Okay. okay. In the movement. All right. So hear me out. I've heard um, Merle Evers, the the widow and activist in her own right of Medgar Evers. I've mm-hmm. heard uh, John Perkins, um, who's a mm-hmm. civil rights activist. His brother got killed by the cops. He was beaten and tortured by the cops in a rural jail in Mississippi. He's 91 mm-hmm. years old. Um, I've heard several uh, old heads say either it feels today like it felt in the 60s or it's worse. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, you could say we haven't made any progress. Mm-hmm. The fight and struggle that they were in 50 or 60 years ago, we're still even right down to the specific topic, voting rights. Yeah. Under threat. Yet again. Oh, my God. You know? Yeah. So, so, so if our only measure of progress is laws changed, is, you know, policies transformed, 
then, oh my goodness, it's two steps forward, one step back, maybe one step forward, two steps back. Right. 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 Well, here's the thing. Here's my, here's putting, putting on my, uh, faith frame, if you will. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't think activism is just Mm -hmm. about how it changes the world. Activism is Mm -hmm. about how it changes you. Yes, for sure. You can go back to ancient Greek philosophers and, and find the principle that the struggle for what is right, however successful by external or worldly definitions, is a worthwhile struggle. Yes. So don't get me wrong. I want to see voting rights <laughs> for all. I want right. to see the crisis of mass incarceration solved. I want to see tangible changes. But I also mm-hmm. know and I learned from the old saints that that's not the only measure of success. It's sort of like I end with an analogy. Mm-hmm. I used to be a uh, teacher and I hated, hated, hated standardized tests because yeah. especially for schools, schools full of uh, black and brown kids, that was the only measure of whether the school was actually, quote unquote, working. Mm-hmm. And it's a terrible measure to begin with. And even right. if you use that measure, it shouldn't be the only one. Right. Mm-hmm. So in a similar way, are we looking at a very narrow set of indicators as the success or the effectiveness of the movement without taking a more holistic view that accounts for measures of success that might go beyond our typical metrics. So there's my dissertation. (laughs) (laughs) No, I really do appreciate that. And this has come up in a couple of conversations I've had for this season of the podcast where, of course, we need structural change. We need it, you know, Um, but half of the battle (laughs) Uh, is our common sense, you know, is about kind of the the symbolic uh, realm, you know, where the stories that we tell, the way that we think, um, our habits, you know, the way that we talk to one another. And you know what? You challenged me right out the gate because I really do get frustrated with people who think the only thing we need to do is sit down and have cups of coffee with people and talk to them Mm -hmm. about their bad ideas. You know, like I get so Mm -hmm. frustrated with them. And at the same time, I'm like, but somebody got to do it. You know, like, be, somebody got to do it. Because if That's we right. don't have that part of it, then you, I don't want to say you can't change the, stru- change the structures, but in, in many conversations I've been having, I've said, you could, you could raise the whole nation to the ground, you know, through armed struggle, just in, 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 the, in your imagination. You could raise the whole thing to the ground. But if, this, but if the common sense is the same, Mm. If the psych, if the psychology is the same, if the values are the same, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you're going to rebuild the same thing. And I think that's why Dr. King talked about a revolution of values, because mm. right, right down to the way that we think and imagine and dream and tell stories and all that kind of stuff, it has to change, or else we can't that's build right. anything else. Uh, but anyway, so let me yeah, go ahead. You please. look at the sociology uh, of it. Uh, Michael Emerson and Christian Smith's classic book, Divided <laughs> by Faith. They, yeah. they, they talk about the paradox where mm-hmm. white evangelicals in particular are, are not just individualistic, they're hyper individualistic. So, mm-hmm. you know, pretty much everyone in the West is individualistic. Everyone in the U.S. is individualistic as compared to other parts of the world. But then when you get down to white evangelicals, it's even more individualistic, which means yes. they really eschew any sort of structural explanations of yes. racism or inequality. But here's the paradox. What changes their mind is individual relationships. Wow. So yeah. it's it's the black person sitting down with the white person and telling them 
what their experience with the police is like. Mm-hmm. And then the light bulb for the white person goes on and said, oh, well, I know this person. They're a good person. And so there must be something wrong with policing. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's something that they're not going to get usually if they read an article from CNN or a book by ta Coates or something like that. Right, so that's right. the paradox of it. And for black folks and advocates, that's our burden. <laughs> mm. But here's the thing. Here's the difference I make. I don't spend almost any time on the hard heads and the knuckleheads. No. <laughs> it's the humble hearted. It's the po- folks who want to learn, want to listen and give it a fair hearing. Yes. Um, but that's a very far cry from the loudest trolls on the Internet. And yeah. I think that's a different category altogether. That's such an important point to make. You can't build a movement with immovable people. You just can't do it. I want to ask you preach. just a couple more questions. I can't believe our time is moving so fast. I'm like, we're going to have to have you back on the show. Like, like so much. That's my bad. That's my bad. Both I'm of us. Fast. I'm going to be fast. Both of us. Honestly, <laughs> I'd be on podcasts and people would be like, I asked Andre two questions and we talked for 30 minutes. <laughs> listen, listen, these are deep questions. We, we, we got to dig in, but I'm going I'm to I'm do it. I'm going to do it. I want to ask you about something you recently tweeted, because I've been hearing people talk about this since at least 2019. Mm. But but the but the the term civil war has been kind of just brewing and stirring and popping up here and there. You know, some people feel like we're on the brink of it. Some people feel like it's inevitable. Some people feel like it's already happened happening. My personal my personal opinion is that the civil war never ended. That's my but we don't yeah, we're not interviewing yeah. me today. <laughs> but but in some ways I feel like the Confederacy actually won the Civil War. We have to get into that in another episode. Mm. But what is what is your take on on that um around this conversation about civil war? So I was in that tweet I said, you know, whatever we call it, here's here's what we're observing. We're observing an ideological splintering, two sides mainly. Um, we're mm-hmm. looking at family splitting apart and being um, at each other's throats. We're looking at, um, you know, clear moral and ethical issues. And mm-hmm. um, I said, you know, whatever we call it, it's it's happening and it looks grim. It might get worse. And, mm-hmm. and, and violence is, is part of it. So I don't know that it, it feels like an ideological civil war already. Mm-hmm. To your point, Brian Stevenson said uh, the North won the Civil War, but the South won the narrative war. Yes. Uh, in that sense, talk about you know one side won the military conflict, but the other side, like you said before, never actually changed their minds <laughs> and right. continued to battle very successfully on a lot of fronts. And that's what we're seeing now. We're seeing this even at school board meetings, right? Um, mm-hmm. So the ideolo- ideological civil war is already happening. I don't know that. Because the geography is different. This is not a sectional battle between North and South. It's more along the lines of urban and rural, kind of. Um, yes. And so you don't have neat geographic separation. So I don't think it'll erupt in a you know, very clear two-sided military conflict like the Civil War. I think it'll look much more like um, a, a huge rise in domestic terrorism, um, mm. mainly brought on by white supremacist extremists, which is already happening now. But January 6th was a rehearsal, and I think it's going to get more violent. Man. That is that's heavy, you know, and I have I've heard this from more than one historian, you know, saying like chances are we're going to see a lot. You know, we're going to see an uptick in violence, you know, Uh, that kind of like vigilante or extremist violence. I don't want to leave people there. So, I mean, how do you make peace with that? (laughs) You know? Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, first of all, I, I use this language advisedly, but I say we are in the civil rights movement of our day. Yes. And 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 I say that in in a pretty literal sense, in the sense that if we survive that long, 30 or 40 years from now, we'll look at the 2010s and the 2020s similarly to how we look at the 50s and 60s in terms of the movement. Mm. I mean, we've got these sort of landmark events punctuated by black death, whether Trayvon Martin or Mike Brown or Breonna Taylor, <clears throat> the list goes on. We've got yeah. media involved, helping to create a narrative. Um, we've yeah. got lots of activism and groups happening. So I do think we're in this moment and I use that language so people know that now is the time. Don't yes. wait for another tragedy. Don't wait for another moment. Don't wait for another movement. This is the movement. And guess yes. what? If you have any doubts, it's the movement if we make it the movement. Whose oh permission are you waiting for? Yes. Whose permission are you waiting for? Do you need the president to sign a bill? Do you need your pastor yes. to say something? It's the movement if you make it the movement. And yes. so where do we leave it? We leave it with the fight. Yeah. And I don't yeah. tend to use violence language. I've never thrown a punch outside of a boxing ring, which, by the way, I was a boxing champ in college. But, hey. you know, I, I early. that was it for me. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it really is a fight and a struggle. And I don't know that we're going to, quote unquote, win according to whatever terms that, that, that you want to define. What I do know is that you're going to find your more authentic self and your more authentic community in the midst of the struggle. I love what you're saying because I forgot the moment that I asked you that I always tell people history is not a story that is happening to us. It's one that we're writing together. You know? Say that, say that, say that. So, so when we hear about these things, like we always have to remember that we have agency to, mm. to write the next chapter, you know, if we dare to do it, you know, but we Come have to get yes. over this idea that we're that we are passively watching these things happen rather yes, than, sir. you know, coming together and saying, you know, we may we may not be guaranteed the next chapter if we act. But one thing is for sure, if we let if we let the opposition write that chapter, then whatever they whatever they say will be, you know, so we have a yes. chance and we have to take yeah. it. You know, you miss 100 of the shots you don't take. <laughs> exactly, and what you just said really reminded me of that. You know, to drive it home is like we don't need to sit here and, and be in terror of these things happening. We need to always remember that uh, social progress has always been won by a few ordinary, organized, yes. outraged yes. people. Yes. You know, yes. and so we and so what I hear You've never in, been in the majority. Exactly, that's what we got to help people understand. Is it's never been the quote unquote popular movement in the sense of numbers, right? Even yeah. last year, when we did see incredible spike in numbers, the, the people who remain activated are never that many. But I will say this, which is which is, I think, part of the indelible mark of the uprisings in 2020 is that more people were activated for a lifetime of activism. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know what I'm saying absolutely. And the other thing you bring up is really important about agency, because we often get labeled um, as having a victim mentality. Yeah, we talk about the injustice done to us and people, yes. black and white, because yeah. not all skin folk are kinfolk, will say, <laughs> oh, you're just, uh, you know, slave to a victim mentality, right? Yeah. Well, actually, it's the people who understand the injustices done to them who exercise the most agency because yes. they know they don't deserve it and they don't want it to continue happening. And so mm -hmm. the struggle says that we are not solely defined by what has happened to us, 
but that we are part of writing our own story, which yes. is, you know, just completely undermines the, the victim mentality argument that some try to make. Absolutely. Jamar, I'm so glad that we had this conversation today. I've got two more questions for you and then we're going to have to hop off, but we're going to have to have you back on the show like so soon because there's so much we got to talk about. You know, you um, know, that's totally cool with me anytime. Yeah. yeah. So um, what keeps you going? You know, what what keeps you involved in this fight? I think, I mean, it's 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 folks like you. It's the people you meet along the way. I cannot emphasize this enough. And maybe we feel this in a different way because of you know, social distancing, right? It's mm -hmm. the community of people along the way. Yeah. You know, um, it, it, we're in a wilderness wandering. Yes. And we, we're not in the promised land yet. Yes. But one thing we got is each other. Yes. And that's, that's huge to me. You know, Fannie Lou Hamer is one of my historical heroes. Mm -hmm. I will talk about her to the day I die. She mm -hmm. has inspired me so much through her faith and her activism and her courage. Um, and she said, that getting involved with SNCC, I don't have the exact quote, quote, but getting involved with the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee in the early days, for yeah. her, it was like her church. Yes. And I think that's so profound, even though it was just a one sentence quote, I think what she was saying was, in so many instances, the institutional church or the congregation is much more passive, um, yes. much less full of faith than the activists out there, you know, going door to door to sharecroppers cabins and telling them about voting rights. And yes. in that effort, she found a spiritual community. Um, and some of them weren't even Christians, um, but, you know, the people united for ethics and justice. And, and I found the same to be true, that as you engage in this work, you meet folks along the way who absolutely inspire you and motivate you. And the last thing I'll say that keeps me going is rhythms. It's rhythms. Mm. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'm short legged and I'm slow, but I recently took up running because I just love being outdoors. <laughs> and any running coach will tell you, you got to get a rhythm. You can't sprint the whole time and you can't, yes. you know, basically walk the whole time. And then even sometimes the cadence will change depending on where you are on the path. And so we need right. to find those rhythms um, in our life and not try to sprint during an entire marathon. That is so good. That is so, so, so good. I hope y'all wrote that down. I mean, unless you're driving, don't be writing while you listen to this podcast. <laughs> um, um, Jamar, how can people keep up with you and uh, follow your work? Yes, please keep up with me via my newsletter uh, on Substack. It's jamartisby.substack.com, jamartisby.substack.com. You can also follow me on social media at jamartisby, J-E-M-A-R-T-I-S-B-Y. Once again, this has been such a great conversation. Thanks for coming on the show, Jamar. And the book is How to Fight Racism. You know, so go and look it up. Who's the publisher again? Zondervan published that bad boy. They took a risk again on me. <laughs> <laughs> so y'all, you know, go to Zondervan's site and uh, order the book today. Go do it right now. And um, we'll see y'all next time. Thank you so much for listening today. If you like what you heard and you haven't already, please subscribe on your favorite podcatcher. Also, leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts helps us get into more ears and minds. You can find all the links in the show notes for today's guest, as well as Andre's newsletter, Patreon, and book. 
You can connect with Andre on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at TheAndreHenry. That's all for this episode of the Hope and Hard Pills podcast. We'll see you next time.